we'll get going. I will talk quietly until we kind of get the sound adjusted. I know it is crazy times. Feels like crazy times. We've got uh, the COVID exposure for our leadership group, uh, this pandemic sidelined, our A team. Now you get the B team today. As far as I understand, they're all doing fine. Barely even have any uh, symptoms or anything for the, the, I think there was just one person who actually came down with, actually tested positive, everybody else is okay. But out of a abundance of caution, they wanted to make, watch out for you all and take care of things. I know we had this contested presidential election. I'm not going to say anything more about that, but it's weird at times. No matter how weird the times feel for you, they're definitely not as weird as the Israelites felt in Numbers 21. Join me there as a way of introduction. Turn to Numbers 21, verse 9. This just sets the stage for our passage this morning. I'm going to read this passage. It's a short passage might be familiar with for some of you, but uh, it's pretty interesting in how it ties into what we're talking about today. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Surprise, surprise. The people spoke against God and against Moses. This is the Israelites, the first generation that was uh, brought out of the Exodus, that God had saved them. That major salvation event of the Old Testament was the Exodus. And so now God is leading these people through the wilderness. And then they grumble against God and against Moses. Verse 5, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and there's no water and we loathe this worthless food. What was that worthless food God was providing for them? manna right actually tasted pretty good it sustained them in the wilderness it was a miracle and yet they were complaining against uh, against this verse 6 then the lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of israel died and the people came to moses and said we have sinned for we have spoken against the lord and against you pray to the lord that he take away the serpents from us so moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Crazy times, but not this crazy, not as crazy what was going on there. This nation of Israel had been saved, they're wandering through the desert, but they complained consistently. And in fact, earlier on, they had disobeyed God directly because God told them to go into the promised land. To go, and then if you remember the story, uh, they send the, um, uh, the spies in, and some of the spies come back. The good guys, Caleb and Joshua, says, yeah, we can do this. Ten other spies says, there's absolutely no way. Because of their lack of faith, God led this whole nation into the wilderness, and they continued to show lack of faith, and they were persecuted. In a sense, they were judged, and they died. That entire first generation died because of their disobedience to God. And God was judging them in these particular ways, and this is one of those events in which that happens. So God is showing his judgment upon them, causing them to perish. And yet, even in the midst of this judgment, this righteous judgment, this true judgment that should have come upon these people for their lack of faith, God still provides a way of escape. Provides an option for them, a way for them to not have to, to perish in this time. Such an interesting passage, so weird in some ways because he got this serpent. A uh, little fast background for myself. So, you know, many of you know I was a pastor at Faith Bible Church. I resigned there to pursue a PhD. My PhD was in studying the serpents in the Old Testament. So I got a lot of stuff to study about and tell you about here, but I'm not going to go deep into that. But it ties directly to our passage this morning. 
So studying this, but what happened was I was teaching at Moody. I was pursuing my Ph.D. Moody collapsed. And so all of the resources I had for pursuing my Ph.D. kind of evaporated at that time also. So then I redirected and now I'm here uh, doing some other things and fun things like that. But it allowed me to study this aspect of serpents in the Old Testament. And it's actually pretty weird. There's some weird things here because if you remember the Ten Commandments, God told them to not make any images of God's. Well, they're not making an image of worshiping a God, but they still weren't supposed to have any images of anything. There were a lot of the nations around that had images of serpents. Even in uh, Egypt, there were a lot of people that had all sorts of ideas about snakes, and they had some interesting ideas about what snakes would do and what they could be, and they were weird. Anybody here like snakes? Anybody here have a snake? I asked this of the youth group earlier. Anybody here enjoy touching snakes? I, I mean, there are people that do that. Yeah, there's a couple of people that kind of raise their hand. Not me, man. Snakes are sick. They're disgusting. I mean, spiders, I can handle spiders. I had a pet spider for a day. But snakes, no way. I don't want to touch snakes. Maybe I watched too many Indiana Jones and he hated snakes too. I don't know. Snakes are weird because if you watch them, you can't figure out which way they're going. Animals, they got arms and legs, you know, and you know that they're going straight. Snakes go sideways. They go backwards. They go forward. They're fast. And back in this day, snakes were deadly. They were dangerous. They would bite. And I think that that's what this is talking about. These fiery serpents, it's not that they were literally on fire. It's probably that when they bit, that bite burned. Burned so bad, it caused death for the Israelites. And so what are they going to do? What does God tell them to do? Thankfully, they at least understand enough to realize this is supernatural. These snakes are not just a common thing here in the desert. This is killing a lot of us. And they go to the source, they go to Moses and say, look, help us. We don't know what's going on here, but you and God know how to provide salvation. Help. And God does. And he tells Moses to do this, make an image of the serpent and hold it up. These people were supposed to exercise a level of faith. A very interesting thing that they were supposed to do, because when they got bit, they were supposed to go gaze upon the serpent left upon the cross, or left, not a cross, but on some sort of a stick, left on some sort of a thing that was lifted high up and they were supposed to look at that this was odd also because the serpents had all sorts of con uh, connotations in the old testament people thought that they maybe uh, in different regions they would worship snakes they were surprised by them sometimes they would um, give homage to different snakes but they knew that there was something unique about them and in some ways they were like the monsters of the old testament and so today we have all sorts of lore about monsters like Frankenstein or probably even more would be like Dracula and vampires. We have all sorts of stories about them. Sometimes they're cool and neat. Sometimes they're really freaky and gross. Same for the Old Testament. Serpents were uh, the whole gamut. Sometimes they were revered. Sometimes they were highly feared. At this time, they were supposed to gaze upon the serpent, exercising, believing that looking on this thing would allow them to not perish. And for many of them, it did. Those Israelites had to exercise faith. That faith had a level of action. They were supposed to do something with that faith. This faith was not merely an assent to the facts. Okay, God said this. I think it'll just happen. Not just knowing that, but they actually had to do something with it. Now, true faith uh, and belief require action. We're not living in a day and age where we have to fear fiery serpents, thankfully, right? I mean, we got, even here in the Northwest, we have some other, like spiders and stuff like that, but we don't have to worry about snakes coming after us. However, we do live in a day and age where the poisonous bites of the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, or the lust of the eyes do lead to eternal damnation. 
Just like the Israelites, what we must fear is not specifically the snake or even not specifically our own sin. What we must fear is the God that righteously judges when we do commit sin. I'm here to tell you today, though, just like in that time, God has provided a way of escape. God has provided a way for us to escape that judgment. He's given a way for us to exercise faith so that the poisonous bite from sin that we commit will not lead to eternal condemnation. We learn about this through the interactions that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our morning is in John chapter 3, so turn there with me. And Jesus refers back to this event in the Old Testament when he's talking about how in the day and age of Nicodemus, people also can turn and be saved from eternal damnation. The youth have been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, I've been having this desire that we would understand Jesus. So we've been going through the Gospel of John, uh, just like Paul says. He says that I, wanna, I, I press on towards the goal of knowing Christ Jesus. And so he says that I forget everything for this one goal of knowing him personally. And then John writes in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah, the one sent from God. So within the youth ministry, we've, I've had this desire that our kids would know Jesus personally. So we've been going through the Gospel of John, trying to understand who he is. And so this is what we looked at even this, this last week on Thursday, John chapter 3. In this episode with Nicodemus, we learned specifically three consecutive steps to escape eternal death and the impending wrath of God from John 3. Three consecutive steps to escape eternal death and the impending wrath of God. That first one is in John 3, 1 through 8. I'm going to read this together. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit so as we've been going through the story of john we've been understanding these different characters within the youth ministry and nicodemus is one of these interesting guys as well who is nicodemus he's a pharisee it tells us here specifically what he is nicodemus a ruler of the jews one of the pharisees this is not just nicodemus a pharisee he is one of the 70 the sanhedrin one of the specific leaders of the entire jewish group what are Pharisees? Well, these are the religious elites. If you've been around the church much, you understand a little bit about what's going on with these Pharisees. They were the ones who were highly ritualistic. They tried to hold the Mosaic law uh, to the very finite degree. And in fact, so much so, they were so zealous about trying to follow the law, they would add to the law. They would create additional laws so that they would not transgress the laws so in a sense here was the law of God and what God had given them in the Old Testament they built another fence around that law so that they wouldn't transgress in any particular way well they went too far in that zeal this created problems with Jesus and the disciples because these guys distorted laws on tithing 
So if you read through the Gospels, you understand that there's consistently these, this bantering that happens concerning tithes because they would, they would distort what it meant to give unto God. They also distorted laws and ruined purification. They were supposed to wash their hands before eating, you know, kind of a hygienic thing. We should do that too. But they became very zealous in how that had to happen. Had to be in a particular manner, in a particular bowl, and then you had to do it a certain number of times. It was really frustrating. It was really distracting from the right thing. They also abused the Sabbath. And you know, that pattern continues today, actually, for the Jewish nation. There are people that still hold to this, and they hold to it in such a way that it is definitely distorting from the Word of God. So on the Sabbath, Saturday for them, they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? You were supposed to prepare everything for Friday, and then Sabbath would be a day holy to the Lord. Well, today, some of the Jews, they actually believe that if you clicked on your HVAC, you're either heating or cooling, you're working. Because that's creating some sort of work in your home. I don't understand how they come up to that, but they believe that. So if you have a Jewish friend and you see them on a Saturday and they're starting to complain and invite you into their house and say, oh man, it's really freezing outside and it's actually really cold inside. What they're trying to bait you to do is to turn on their air conditioning or their heating system. Because if you turn it on, they're not working. But if they ask you to turn it on, they're asking you to work on the Sabbath. Crazy, right? This is absurd to have all of these laws. This is the sort of guy that comes to Jesus. And you can imagine Jesus just thinking, this is going to be an interesting conversation. This guy has no clue what the law is. And notice what, what this Nicodemus Pharisee says. The first thing he says, Rabbi, it's kind of an honoring way to talk to Jesus. But then right away, he distorts where things are at. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. It's an interesting thing, and I, what I love about the scripture, specifically the Gospel of John, is that it's so deep, so fantastic in what we do here. I'm just going to barely scratch the surface of what you can understand here. So I hope that you'll take this passage sometime later on, go back and read more of it, study this deeply, because there's so many little nuances and layers to the message that's going on here that John is writing. But this one thing that we understand, so this is one of those themes, look at what what Nicodemus says he knows and then by the end we realize this guy knows nothing he does not comprehend the word of God and Jesus exposes that and one of the things I wish I knew is what Jesus's tone was when he's converse, conversing with Nicodemus so Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus the sort of guy that can't even do this work on Saturday makes all of these crazy rules and yet he comes to Jesus and says look Jesus we know you're from God notice this though we know that you're from God. Nobody can do these, thing, these signs unless he's from God. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He didn't come and ask something. He didn't come baiting Jesus. He came and said, Jesus, I know who you are. This is one of the interesting things I see with Jesus, too, as we read through the Gospels, is he rarely asks the direct question that people ask. He rarely answers exactly what people are asking. A lot of times they'll be asking this, trying to trap him, and Jesus speaks this way. That's what he does here with Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't ask a question, but Jesus goes right to the heart of things. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It says here that Nicodemus came at night also. Why would he do that? It's another one of these layers that's very interesting in John, because you have darkness and light. You have night and you have day, and you have this contrast that happens consistently. 
probably showing something about the spiritual manner of who Nicodemus is, that either he's afraid, doesn't want other people to know about him meeting with Jesus at night, or that potentially shows something in his heart, what's going on dark. But I think it's more this, that he's afraid, that he's afraid to let other people know his interest in Jesus, and Jesus responds to that. Jesus starts off answering back to Nicodemus with something that absolutely stuns him. I say to you, unless one is born again, verse 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus takes Jesus literally, because that's what he does. He always takes the law literally. He takes it exactly as it is, and he says, born again? That is weird, Jesus. That is like gross. How in the world can that be? Well, just like with the youth, with you, I'm not going to go into any details. You understand the sort of thing about this. But being born again, he just totally misses it. Just totally doesn't even understand what Jesus is talking about. No, Nick, born of the water and the spirit, not born physically again. And I think that Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament sort of ideas of this. So turn with me to Ezekiel 36, and I believe it's all the way through the, the prophets about this idea of new birth and regeneration. But specifically, Ezekiel is one of those passages that tells us this in a good way. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll begin in verse 24. Ezekiel is giving this prophecy, telling about what God is going to do. And he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. This is a a future time. Ezekiel is talking about how God is going to restore the nation of Israel. Verse 25, and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be with my people and I will be your God. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. So you see this uh, back in like verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and Spirit, that's what I believe is, is talking about. This water is this cleansing that Jesus is talking about. A removal of the sin within their life. And then the Spirit is also this promise that we see within the Old Testament that God is going to come and bring the Spirit so that people would be renewed on the inside. Some people, it's kind of an interesting passage because uh, a lot of people will think that this is talking about baptism in some way. Every time water is mentioned, it must be talking about baptism. I don't believe that's really what the case is here. Uh, I think it's this aspect of spiritual cleansing is what Jesus is talking about. And then he gives an example of what, what goes on when somebody does this, how the Spirit blows or moves them. And it's a lot of plays on words that he's given up here. Nicodemus is totally stunned by this. What in the world are you talking about? What is this new birth? And so he asks this, how can these things be, verse 9? And that leads to our second step in fleeing the wrath to come. That first step is you must be born again. The first step is you must be born again. The second step is you must believe in the Son of God. That's 9 through 16. 
Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says, listen, you're the teacher of all Israel and you don't even understand this stuff? You were lifted high up. You're one of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're, you're supposed to understand all the nuances of the law and you know how to create these laws, but you don't understand the ways and the means of what God is doing. And so he shows how we must believe in him. And so he kind of confronts Nicodemus. This is one of these truly, truly statements again. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now I'm going to jump ahead to verse 14. And he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so the context is really clear of what we understand. F- very familiar with John 3.16, but here's the context. So then it continues in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So such a familiar passage, right? John 3.16, we come to this. And we understand this passage in its own setting, but now we understand better. It's it's at the time that Jesus is discussing with Nicodemus, discussing with the Pharisees who don't understand the law, and Jesus is telling him specifically, prophetically, what's going to happen. Listen, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be renewed inside. How's that going to happen? This is the way it happens, Nicodemus. Just like Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness so that people there could escape condemnation, I, the Son of Man, must also be lifted up in a similar manner. And how does that happen? How is Jesus going to be lifted up? He mentions this, or John mentions this, three different times in the Gospel of John that Jesus is going to be lifted up. This is what I love about the Gospel of John, too, is that there's so many layers, so many nuances. That's why I'm encouraging our students to read the Gospel of John. Read it, not just quickly once, but to read it and devour it. Sit there and chew on it. Sit there and savor what's going on. When John writes, he's writing to a particular audience. I believe that this is what happened maybe around 30 AD or so, from 3 to 30 or so, was the life of Jesus. John experienced that. And then John writes his gospel around 90 A.D., a whole generation later. So when he's writing his gospel, he's got a couple different generations he's talking about. He's writing to a specific generation of believers that need to understand the truth. And he's talking about events that happened a whole generation earlier, 60-some years earlier. And then now, look at us, way 2,000 years past that, we're a whole different audience. And so when we read through the gospel of John, we have to understand what is John saying to his audience and how is he retelling what was going on in the original events? And that's what happens here, John 3. As you read through John 3, and specifically John 3, 16, I, I say this, and uh, this is a fun discussion to have at different times. Are these the literal words of Jesus, John 3, 16? Because if you read 3, 16 and following, I say it's the words of Jesus with a John accent, if that makes sense. If you've ever quoted somebody and you kind of get the quote, maybe not exactly, but you kind of get the feel, or Sonora, our daughter, she loves to use a British accent, you know, good morning, daddy, you know, and sometimes I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you're saying. Well, I'm British, you know, she'll say these fun things. John is writing and telling us the words of Jesus with a Johannine accent, the way that John consistently says things, with these contrasts, very flavorful language, and he says, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. And when John is writing this, he's understanding Jesus is gone. Jesus had already been lifted up. 
Jesus had been ascended into heaven, and John knows this story. And so as you read through the Gospel of John also, it kind of bounces back and forth chronologically. It doesn't exactly follow a linear stage, and it's not exactly like reading a newspaper that's just retelling the event. No, John is presenting a case for us. And he's presenting a case with Nicodemus at the time, but also so that John's readers would understand what's going on. And so John preaches the gospel right here through the words of Jesus. God, let's start with God, so loved the world. This is one of those passages, and it's so rich in meaning that you can go through every single word and sit and think on every single word. God, who is it? It's God. God is the first mover here. What did God do? He so loved the world. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. Who did he love? The world. Not the earth. Not the dirt. No, the people of the world. He so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his only son, his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is exactly the gospel It's acknowledging the full gospel. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Whoever believes in him should not perish. Well, I believe it's acknowledging the components here. God starts with God. It's acknowledging sin that we have transgressed against a God. Just like the people in Israel in the desert, they had sinned against God and judgment was coming upon them. So for us as well, we have sinned against God in particular ways. and We must escape that judgment. How do we escape that judgment? Salvation. God provides that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what happens when we put our faith in the Son of God? It's this. We won't perish. We will have eternal life. It's this aspect that we can be uh, saved from the impending wrath to come and the impending wrath right there. But also regeneration. Uh, This is one of the things we do with the youth group a lot is I have people break up into groups and read these passages, but uh, adults, they're not as flexible. So we're just going to have you sit in your place and look up these verses with me, okay? So we're going to do these together, and I'm just going to lead you through them. So look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Actually, we'll do this. Write these down. Turn to Galatians 2.20. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to read two of these verses And then we will read Galatians 2.20 together. Eternal life comes, but also regeneration comes. New birth looks like this. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 1 Peter 1.3 is similar also. And I think Nathan might have even read this passage earlier. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then Galatians 2.20, if you're there with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. It's probably common knowledge, common terminology for us in our day and age. And I was talking with the youth about this on Thursday. It may not be as big of a deal for us today, but you guys have all heard the term born again, right? 
You heard that? I mean, that was probably back in the days of, um, you know, Billy Graham and his crusades was, was really preaching this aspect of being born again. And in our culture and in our movies and stuff like that that we watch, you'll hear people say, I'm a new man, right? Somebody who's either taken a nice, a nice shower and comes out of that and says, I'm a new man. Or somebody who actually changes their life. So new birth, new creation, newness of life, it's common in our culture. It's something that we talk about, being a new person. In Nicodemus's day and age, that was not so common, but it's commonplace for us. So we understand what this means to be new, to be different, to be transformed, to be absolutely starting from scratch and be cleansed in that way. And that's what John is telling to us. This is what happens, new birth. That we do, we literally are crucified with Christ. I love this Galatians passage. We literally, no, not literally, we die and then we're raised up with Christ. It's as if it's literal. It's so much so that we're so different because of what God has done in our life. That new life is one of repentance. It's turning from a particular way and turning towards God. I was going this direction. I lived this way in particular sins. I had these patterns of my life, and yet God stopped me. And he showed that the way I was going was the path of destruction. And he turns me around and causes me to walk this way on the path of life. That's repentance. That's newness of life. That's the change that we are supposed to have. It's interesting because it's a positional cleansing. It's a positional cleansing. It's uh, that we now stand before God if we do this. If we confess our sins before God, just like this says, if we believe in the Son of God, that God has lifted him up, crucified him, and we stand and understand that God has done this. He has taken his righteous son, who lived a a perfect life, a full life, and he took that perfect life and he sacrificed it on the cross. And if we believe that, and then we understand that he took that perfect life and now substitutes my life in that place, I am now positionally clean before God. I had sin, and just like the serpents bit those people in the wilderness, I should die from that sort of poison. But instead of me dying, Jesus died in my place. And how was he lifted up? On the cross. We understand that now. It's so clear for us. In John's day and age, it wasn't so clear, and so he had to make it explicit for everybody. Just as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on a cross for all to see. And John continues to lift that up so that everybody would understand Jesus died in my place. And now in our faith, we have to gaze upon the cross. We have to do the same sort of thing that the Israelites did. We look upon the cross believing that that death had meaning. That death had significance because I should have died. We read through the rest of the Gospels. We read through the rest of the New Testament. We understand I am the one because of my own sin, because of my transgression against God, I should yet I can gaze upon the cross and I can trust and believe that God has taken that death, that righteous Lamb of God in my place. His sin covers, His blood covers my sin. His perfection covers my imperfection. His goodness covers my badness. Positionally now, the believer stands before God sinless. God sees us in the righteousness of Christ. As he looks to us, and I don't know how you see God, and I don't know how you interact with God, but sometimes I feel like God sees all of me. And I know he does. And I feel like God is just constantly shaking his head. Yogi, you did it again. 
man, you sinned again. Sometimes I just like, I don't, I don't know, God, I don't know how to do this. That's not exactly correct. Yes, he sees all of it, and he sees my whole heart, but he also sees me pure. He sees me through the filter of Jesus who died and took my place. And now we stand positionally right before God, a perfected life. He sacrificed, Jesus was sacrificed in my place and in your place. The perfect substitution. Belief is understanding God. It's belief and understanding that I have sin. It's belief and understanding that I have salvation, but it's also sanctification. That's the other thing about belief that we see in John here that's really unique, is that we have this sanctification process, the ongoing process of becoming clean. Positionally, I'm clean, but I still sin. I still have tendencies. You do too. All of us have these tendencies in which we still transgress against God. But one of the things that John consistently deals with in his gospel is the belief and the contrast between true belief and make-believe. We see this in the latter part here. How do we tell the difference between true belief and make-belief? Well, that's our third step. To escape wrath and judgment, the third step is your faith must produce action. Verses 19 through 21. 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The problem in the world now is that men love darkness rather than light, right? Now, if you think, nah, that's not me. Well, ask yourself, how much do you like to be confronted in your sin? (laughs) Well, okay, maybe I'd prefer darkness. Maybe I'd rather have my sins covered. How much do you like it when your spouse comes to you and says, you know, that other day when you responded that way, and it didn't really seem really Christ-like. Do you embrace that? Thank you, dear wife, for loving me so graciously and kindly and helping me know the way. If you're like me, it's a little bit more hackled than that. Really? Okay, you're right. You know better. Right? We, we love darkness rather than light. We're gravitating towards doing the wrong thing rather than the right thing. But positionally, we're pure, and yet we have this struggle that positionally I'm right, I'm, I'm perfected before God, and yet I still have these tendencies. How do I deal with this? How do I work through this? Well, we come into the light, like Jesus says. And that's what faith does, is hopefully, eventually, and clearly, and positively, what the truth says, is it does. It causes us to want to be cleansed. Yeah, initially, hopefully, this might happen. Initially, we may not want to have that confrontation, but ultimately, we do. And that's the struggle. And you want to struggle with the sin. You want to not just live in it. But no, you want to struggle with it. So hopefully eventually you will repent when somebody confronts you or when that sin is exposed, when you come to the scriptures and you realize, wow, I'm not supposed to do that. And then you change in such a life and you stop doing what you're not supposed to be doing. That faith produces action. And it's really clear in James, correct? Understand James chapter 2? We should turn there briefly. We understand the tension, and the tension is interesting within the scriptures, and I think that John just leaves the tension. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And John continues to build, or, or James continues to build that argument through that passage that say, listen, faith is not just verbal faith. Belief is not just verbal belief. It's doing something about it. And in the Gospel of John, we have the same thing because we have these issues where people believe and then we have these issues where people believe. And interestingly, John doesn't make a comparison. So turn back to John chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body when he says, hey, tear this temple down and then I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures. Verse 23, though. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. John does this really interesting thing where he says, believe, believe. And he uses the exact same word, but he doesn't make a distinction between those. And so the distinction is later on that John says, look, it's not just a snapshot, it's a life. Somebody who truly believes in God is going to act upon that belief. They're going to cleanse themselves. They're going to do good deeds. They're going to run to the light, and they're going to run away from the darkness. They're going to do these deeds in accord with repentance. And so a true life, true repentance, true faith doesn't merely look upon Christ on the cross, but it changes that life. It works through the sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus. There's a significant nuance here that you must understand. I'll phrase it this way. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We work because of our salvation, right? So what happens is the gospel comes into our life. We are confronted with the sin in our life. We have to change from that sin. We believe Jesus fully. Then as we put our faith in Jesus, we do works as a result, as a response to the work that God has done. We don't do the works and then come to the cross and now God accepts us. No way. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. God must rejuvenate us first, and then we can work. But if you have true faith, you will work. True faith works. Well, what exactly those deeds are and those works are is a whole sermon in itself. What does it look like to ex exercise faith? But let me, I can just summarize it in this. It's loving God in a specific way of worship and in service, and it's loving others and taking care of other people's needs in particular ways or helping other people. That's what true faith is and works would be like. Lifetime Christians and those raised in Christian homes have a tendency to be much like Pharisees. They do. It's easy for us to be like Nicodemus and to say, okay, this is purity, this is what God wants. Well, let me build a bunch of rules to make it look like I'm following what God wants. I don't want to offend you, I really don't, but I do want you to be saved. I do want you to be introspective in this and realize you have a tendency to be legalistic. I have a tendency to be legalistic. Uh, you may even have a tendency to enforce pharisaical legalism in your home. I have that tendency as well. And sometimes it's easier to make a law and to follow a law. Sometimes it's easier to look good than to be good. 
Sometimes it's easier to say the right things than to actually believe the right things. Sometimes it's easier to be busy with right activities and avoid what God is trying to work in my own heart, my own life. You might even actively avoid sinning because you know you're going to go to an accountability group and know that you're going to be asked about those things. But all the while being dead to God internally. That's not what God wants. God wants us to be alive to Him. He does not want us to hold a form of godliness and deny its power. He wants us to sincerely and righteously walk before him. You might look good and you might act good, but only on the outside. What God wants is you to be renewed from the inside. He wants true spiritual rebirth, a new birth, and he provides that new birth. The only way to escape the righteous judgment of God is to exercise sincere faith to gaze upon the Son of God who was given for you. What does that look like? What does that look like? Here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and just close your eyes and listen to some of these passages. Bow your head if you want to. Try to be introspective on this. Here are some interesting passages that tell us what it looks like in the struggle between darkness and light. In a crowd our size, there are people that are actively sinning, I understand. There are people that are struggling with sin, and there are people that are having victory over sin. But let God expose that to you. Galatians 5.22. If there's things in your life that are the opposite of these, confess these before God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What I want you to do, lay your heart bare before God. Realize His wrath can send you to everlasting damnation without being cleansed from your sin. But you must be cleansed from it. Gaze upon the Son on the cross. Confess your sin if there's particular sin. Repent and turn from your sin, but also plan to grow in community with others so that you can do good works. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the strength that you have provided for us to escape, the means for us to escape the condemnation that's coming. Lord, we live in a world that um, tempts us, that coaxes us, that surrounds us with ways to sin against you when it's like fiery serpents that sin it can hurt but sometimes we even find the pleasure in it yet ultimately leads to eternal damnation and eternal death but thank you that you provided a way of escape you've provided a way that if we believe in you the one who was on the cross for us positionally making us clean before you and by faith we can escape the wrath to come and we can experience true faith now, true change of life 
and true rebirth moment. Lord, I pray that your word would sink deep within each person here, that you would expose and lay bare where people are living by rules rather than by faith in you, and that you would cause us all to grow in a manner of a, of a heart that loves you.